The following podcast does not contain explicit content, and so all of those toddlers are fine to keep listening. Hello, and welcome to Leading Questions. I'm Evelyn. And I'm Hannah. And today we talk to Bonnie Doherty, who is our first guest to be a member of a Nobel Prize winning team. And let's face it, probably our last, given that I do hope to have finished my dissertation by the time Malala is appointed a professor of practice here at the law school. So. Some lofty goals you're setting for That's yourself. right. <laughs> Baby steps. I mean, she is achieving things at a rapid pace, but I do hope that I have a little while. So Bonnie was part of the Nobel Peace Prize team. Uh, they won in 2017 for the campaign to ban nuclear weapons, which is no small feat. And what I loved about this conversation was how relentlessly optimistic Bonnie is. It doesn't matter, it seems, how dark the headlines can get or how bleak the world can seem sometimes. Bonnie just totally is handling it. And I found her optimism really contagious. Definitely. And just her belief in the power of individuals and of incremental steps to achieve big change was really heartening. Yeah, especially for the law students among us. Yeah, definitely all about incremental steps over here. Yeah. Bonnie Doherty, you specialize in disarmament and international humanitarian law and are currently the associate director and a lecturer on law at the International Human Rights Clinic here at Harvard Law School. You are also a senior researcher in the arms division of Human Rights Watch and did work at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize, to name but a few highlights of an inspiring career which we can't wait to hear more about. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So let's go back uh, toward the beginning. Mm -hmm. You graduated from Harvard College. What did you study and what drew you to that field? Uh, I studied history and literature, focused in America and Russia, so sort of a four-major major, but it was one major. Uh, I'd always been a history buff since I, my earliest days and thought I would get a PhD in history, but ended up in law school uh, instead. From college, you went and worked as a journalist for three years? I, I, I spent one year overseas teaching, and then I came back uh, to the Boston area and worked as a journalist for three years in a, a daily paper outside of Boston. And that included a trip to Bosnia? Is that it did. Well, right. most of my most of my uh, reporting was more local news. I did have the opportunity to go to to Bosnia for about ten days. I embedded with the U.S. peacekeepers there, and also had the opportunity to speak to many of the victims of the conflict in Bosnia, uh, including uh, villagers in a town that had just returned for the first time since the war that day. So it was a very moving experience and increased my interest in doing international work. Yeah, I was going to ask, it seems now that that was a natural thing for you to have done given some of your later work, but at the time, was that something that you were specifically seeking out, that kind of experience, or was it serendipity? Uh, I, was, I was always interested in issues of armed conflict, even when I was focusing on history. Those sort of drew me to those, those times in, in history. And so having the opportunity to combine journalism with uh, armed conflict or post-armed conflict research was, was definitely something I wanted to do and actually had to decide what law school I was going to that week. So I was wondering why I was going to law school when I wanted to do like war correspondent or international correspondence, but it turned out to be a good choice. And you must be more accustomed to it now, but then I imagine it must have been a bit of a shock to find yourself in a society that had just been wrought by conflict. Do you remember your first impressions of, of that environment? My first impression was uh, actually with the military because we flew over with the U.S. Air Force, um, from Delaware over, all the way over to Bosnia. And so my first impression was meeting the peacekeepers and so forth. Uh, but in terms of the country and the people, I think one of my major impressions was, first of all, that they 
the people said if there were no peacekeepers, the war would, there was a tinderbox and the war would get up again. And then the second was returning to this village that, as I say, had just um, returned that day. And I spoke with a couple that was eating lunch on a foundation. All that was left was a bare foundation and they were eating in a corner and I asked them why. And it turned out it was their kitchen. So all that was left was a tile floor, but that was their kitchen and it meant so much to them to be back there. So that definitely left an impression on me. Wow. So you thought about a PhD for a second, but ended up in law school and you said you were sort of figuring out whether to go to law school and in the moment you were sort of hesitating as to why law school is compared to continuing with the journalism. So why law school? I'd always been debating, or at least since college, I'd been debating whether I wanted to study history, which I'd always loved, or be more part of history in the making. Mm -hmm. And so journalism allowed me to do that, but also following a law career would also allow me Mm -hmm. to do that. And so I came to Harvard uh, interested in particularly international law and environmental law. And looking back, careers tend to make a lot more sense than they do looking forward. In retrospect, did you, could you sort of have figured you were bound for law school? I don't think it was a clear trajectory, but I think looking back, I think A to B to C makes sense. But I don't think it was a clear, it was never clear to me that I would end up where I am today. Uh, and interestingly, after I graduated from law school, I did a kind of work that is a mix of law and journalism. Mm-hmm. I get to go to the field and interview victims and military and government officials and so forth, but yet I also apply the law uh, in a way that's hopefully effective and and work on treaty negotiations. So it was a good mix for my background. So after law school, you went to work for Human Rights Watch. Uh, Your first day was September 12, 2001, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, What was it like going to work on that day? It was sort of a shock. I mean, my first day was supposed to be in a training in the Empire State Building, which needless to say, didn't happen. But the Human Rights Watch was you know, shifting all its priorities. Obviously the focus was on dealing with 9-11. Whatever projects were planned for me were out the window, so we had to adjust in real time. And six months mm-hmm. later I was in Afghanistan researching the use of cluster munitions, which has since led to where I am today. Either literally or figuratively, how many places has working for HRW taken you? Oh God, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I've done, well for Human Rights Watch, maybe, I don't know, 10 field missions, but also countless uh, diplomatic meetings. So um, it's, it's hard to put a number on it unless they actually count, but it's a large number. So your work on the cluster munitions ban has been extremely influential and important, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you said that you were sent to Afghanistan to, mm-hmm. to look at that. Was that just by chance? Well, the Afghanistan obviously arose because that's where the U.S. was fighting after uh, the 9-11, and I had been placed in the arms division, which dealt uh, with the effects of war on civilians and with the use of certain weapons. So come February, they'd ask me if I'd rather go to Uzbekistan to look at arms trade research or Afghanistan to look at cluster munitions, and it was an easy choice for me. I wanted to go where more action was and to see the effects of the war firsthand. And can you explain what your day-to-day work is in an environment like that? Like when you go into Afghanistan, what does an average day look like if there's such a thing? We... Most of the day is, in Afghanistan, I'd say that we focus on two things. One was interviewing people, so um, getting up, finding, going to a town, for example, talking to people and determining who had been affected by cluster missions or other bombings and so forth. And so doing interviews, also did interviews with government officials and military. Uh, But then we also looked at the physical evidence, and that was really crucial. So um, looking at cluster missions firsthand made them come to life more than reading about fuses and 
TNT and so forth, once you could actually see them, you could understand their effects. So it's the two parts of our mission were physical evidence and gathering testimony. How do you learn to be good at something like that when you can't really practice it in any environment and it must be so different to actually be there on the ground? I was definitely learning on the job. Uh, I think it helped me a lot to have been a journalist, so I knew how to mm-hmm. run it, do an interview, uh, which is not always the case when you started a place like Human Rights Watch, but that was a significant help. I traveled before, not to war zones, but I had a sense of you know being able to be flexible in those kind of environments. And I think I just took to it. It was definitely something that I loved to do and just felt very comfortable even on my first uh, field mission. Do you get scared at all being in <laughs> war zones? I haven't that much, no. Um, I think some people do and maybe I should be more, but I've never really felt nervous. Um, I think as long as you take the right precautions and you know have an awareness of what's going on, um, I felt pretty comfortable and you know, is careful but comfortable in what's going in the situations. Wow. You were, in addition to being in Afghanistan, you were also in Libya and in Ukraine in the time in which those conflicts were in the headlines. How much are those conflict zones or, or the ones you've, other ones you've been in alike, and how much are, is each one really unique? There's certain factors that are alike in terms of the effects of the war on civilians, whether it's physical injury, psychological trauma, displacement, destruction of infrastructure. So those are certain commonalities. Obviously, each culture is different. And uh, for example, I was, as I said, I was in Afghanistan, which was just coming out from being under Taliban rule, had been um, very restricted on modernization, had little communications. Next year, I was in Baghdad, uh, which was a much more um, modernized society, had a lot more technology. And watching that distinction was very interesting. Um, So one example I always use in Afghanistan, they were excited to get access to TV, so they pounded together Coke cans um, to make satellite dishes. And in, Af- in Iraq, you could see, go to a store and see satellite dishes like we would have here. And so they both had a, a need for information. That was common, but the, how they went about it was very different. And what kind of work were you doing on the ground in Libya and in Ukraine? In, uh, I went to Libya and Ukraine with Harvard students, and uh, I went to Libya to look at the effects of the vast arsenals that Gaddafi left behind. So they were unsecured weapons that people were at risk of being killed from, stealing scrap metal, transferring to terrorist groups and so forth. In Ukraine, I was uh, traveling along the front line looking at the effects of shelling on on healthcare. So I spoke, went to a lot of hospitals and met with doctors, nurses, um, paramedics, all of whom were remarkably brave during the conflict to continue the care under those circumstances. So in as much as, um, as you said, conflicts have certain commonalities, the, the kind of trauma that's inflicted, the kind of physical damage that's inflicted, how much, um, trying to figure out how to ask this, sort of how do you know what to go looking for? Like when you say we're going to look for this thing in Libya, but this other thing in Ukraine, who or what tells you that that's going to be your mission for the trip? Uh, that is usually, the general parameters are usually set before you go. So for example, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we were there largely to look at the, as a, to the effects of the war on civilians. That's one thing Human Rights Watch does. Mm-hmm. So looking at both weapons use and targeting, thing, why were civilians dying? Um, and then we may have focused in on certain issues like cluster bombs. In Libya, uh, we were working with another organization that had an interest in this issue. And it was also that pr- project was actually largely, particularly driven by students who were looking to get involved in the issue and looking around to see what was one of the big issues. So it can be partner driven, it can be looking at news media and seeing what the major sources of problems are, um, 
there's a range of, of sources. So you were the legal expert behind the campaign for the absolute prohibition on cluster munitions that led to a historic treaty in 2008. Something like that treaty must have seemed like a bit of a long shot when you first started working towards it. Can you describe the process of getting to a treaty like that? Sure. Um, so first of all, I wouldn't say I was the legal expert. I would say I was one, even though there are not as many lawyers as you would expect in the NGO community working on negotiations. So I just how, want to not overstate my, my role. But, um, but How many lawyers would you say that when you say not as many as we'd expect? <laughs> I mean, there are probably a handful on the campaign. It's hard, maybe six to 12. I don't know. Um, it's hard to look back, but we definitely played a key role. Um, but when I first went to Afghanistan, it never occurred to me that, or that these things would be able to be banned. I thought maybe they could be regulated, but that it was just too much of an uphill battle. States were using them, um, and despite the negative effects, diplomacy was moving very slowly. But remarkably, about six years after I was there, the weapons were banned. And to see that kind of, even though it's a slow process, to see that effectiveness of doing our field research, which helped raise awareness of the issue, and then being part of the actual negotiations, using our legal skills to help negotiate a treaty, um, was incredibly inspiring. Is the kind of thing that keeps you going in this work. There must have been significant headwinds in just trying to coordinate so many uh, different people with different priorities and things like that. And given that an agreement like that is so difficult to get to, what kept you motivated and kept you working towards it? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was... It was partly having seen the effects of these weapons, both Afghanistan, um, Iraq, and Lebanon, uh, and knowing firsthand what they did really did keep me motivated. Um, so intellectually, I was motivated by the challenge of crafting treaty text, and that was really exciting once we got in the negotiations. But I think under, important in this work is to remember the humans and not get lost in the, in the advocacy or the legal details. But if you remember the humans, you it, it keeps you going. Given that the lawyers in the humanitarian disarmament movement, there's so few of you. How do you, in leading a movement like that, how do you decide your strategy and priorities, especially when there's so few of you uh, directing those resources as well? So I think, uh, first of all, in the humanitarian disarmament movement, which is a movement that uh, seeks to end the end the civilian suffering from weapons and rather than focusing on national security issues, uh, it's very much a people-driven movement and not just because it's working to protect civilians, but also driven by ordinary people to make change. So the the treaties I've been involved with had all been spearheaded by coalitions, so um, of many different organizations around the world, I mean, dozens or in many most cases, hundreds of organizations, uh, then led by a smaller group that helps dictate policy and so forth. So I think in terms of coordination, one of the most important things is to have a common call to agree at the beginning on you want, for example, do you want to ban the use, production, and stockpile and transfer of cluster munitions and having sort of a simple but common call. And then the individual organizations can work together to provide whatever their expertise is, whether it's working with victims or in our case, um, providing legal expertise um, or providing uh, technical evidence or anything like that. So I think it's a divide the expertise, but have a common uh, purpose that really keeps these things going. And in trying to decide that common purpose or negotiating a common purpose, it seems to me you might have some people who are more focused on pragmatic results and perhaps some people who are wanting to, you know, try and get a more 
I hesitate to say idealistic outcome because there's no sort of idealistic outcome in, in these situations, but, you know, stre- stretch goals and try and work for something harder. How do you negotiate those different ideas? In my experience, the disarmament campaigns that I've been involved with tend to shoot high. And there's um, and the reason for that is, you know, you can aim high, even if you get something less than what you get, you're, if you will get the better result. If you aim low, you're likely to get low or even lower. So um, I think that's part of civil society's role is to push the envelope. And in my experience, that that has been successful in every campaign I've worked on so far. I mean, the cluster mission treaty was even higher standard than we expected. And I think the nuclear ban treaty is similarly higher than many people expected going in, uh, civil society as well as governments. So uh, it's been inspiring to see, it may not always work, but it's inspiring to see that, in my experience, it, it usually has. And why do you think you got those unexpectedly high outcomes? What do you think uh, pushed it over at the end? I think emphasizing the humanitarian concerns so that the, these issues weren't a matter of state, uh, you know, think, protecting their own interests, but that recognizing there's a universal problem that transcends national boundaries. So whether that's with nuclear weapons or landmines or cluster munitions, these are a concern for humanity. So they can overlook their their um, state interests to a certain degree. And I think, and also being motivated uh, by the presence of survivors who can come and both tell their stories and advocate on their own behalf. I think when we adopted the Cluster Munition Convention, there was many people thanked over and over again the survivors as well as civil society for making it come to life. And I think that was a, a driving force in these, the success of these campaigns. I was going to ask about um, sort of the role of advocacy or, or bearing witness. And you said to the sometimes the survivors will come and speak, but in addition to being a lawyer, is some of your job or some of the humanitarian community's job to be the people who say, we were on the ground, we saw this, let us describe to you firsthand what's there? Because I imagine that not everyone who's in this debate has ever been on the ground in these circumstances. Definitely. We, uh, at least the role I've played or Human Rights Watch has played as well as um, now Harvard's clinic has been a, a dual role, not just to wear my lawyer hat and help with treaty language, but it's essential to bring to bear the, the experience, the firsthand accounts of what happened. So as I, when I was in Afghanistan, Iraq, or Lebanon, to be able to document the stories, document the physical impact, show, you know, put it in a legal context, but really bringing that testimony to the world was crucial. And that those reports helped motivate states to take up the issue, that it wasn't an abstract topic. So uh, I definitely think field research is crucial to these, kind of, these enterprises. Would you say that there was something above your or beyond your journalism training that helped you sort of bring that narrative? Or is that something you learned in the process of doing? I guess I'm imagining law school isn't necessarily the kind of thing that would train you the most for that particular side of your job. I think law school didn't prepare me for the documentation side. It definitely helped with the the negotiation side. I think the journalism helped me with the skills of learning how to um, interview people and to tell complicated topics, describe complicated topics in an understandable form for for lay people. Um, I think uh, my love of history and my experience Mm -hmm. in history also made me realize the importance of storytelling and the importance of individuals in both making a difference but also in in dealing with the the harm they address. And I think those were crucial. So the combination of, of history and journalism really set me up well. So in addition to your continuing work with the Human Rights Watch, you joined the law school and the International Human Rights Clinic in 2005. You've spoken a little bit about the role of civil society in these sorts of debates, um, but is there a difference in the kind of work that a law school as an institution or a clinic as an institution can be involved in as compared to an, an NGO like HRW? 
A lot of our work at the clinic is in partnership with NGOs. So I continue to partner heavily, obviously, with Human Rights Watch, but also with other organizations, PACS, a Dutch peace organization, Civic, which is DC-based, so as well as many others. So I think one thing that's great about the clinic is you still have your foot in the real world. You still can sort of wear that civil society hat to a degree. Uh, but also you bring, well, first of all, you have the opportunity to work with students to help groom the next generation of, of human rights advocates, which is very exciting. And in some cases, it's useful to wear the academic hat. They People have respect for academics and respect for Harvard in many cases. And so it allows you in some cases to sort of be the more neutral force or at least the the less advocacy, you know, they think mm-hmm. of it as a more neutral body, whether we are or not, it's questionable. But, and that gains you a different kind of respect. So sometimes wearing my HRW hat is the most uh, effective to accomplish my goals and sometimes wearing my Harvard hat is mm-hmm. the most effective and it appeals to different audiences. And to what extent is the clinic's work um, I want to say reactive or proactive, which is to say, are folks approaching you and saying, you know, you have an academic head, you have a Harvard connection, would you like to come in on on this project with us? And how much of it is, you know, you see what's going on and you say, you know, Harvard really could contribute something to this. Can we get involved? It's a combination. Uh, we we definitely have organizations come to us and ask us to work on a certain issue. Uh, so that's a big role. But I do t- uh, try to seek out projects at some point. Um, so. For example, uh, in Ukraine, I was really interested both in working with this particular organization that we'd long known each other but hadn't actually partnered together on. And we knew that Ukraine was an issue we wanted to work on because it was one of the sort of overlooked conflicts at that time. Um, and then we worked together to figure out what angle was, was most appropriate. So in that case, no one, an organization didn't come from Ukraine, didn't come to us, but we sought out the, the topic that seemed to have been under-addressed so where we'd have some value added both as field researchers and, again, providing the legal context. And this is just a minor question, but it's occurring to me along the way. Um, do you have partners in translators, or is there a lot of English, or is it both? Like, I'm just, it's all of a sudden occurring to me that you're, I'm sure, t- a terrific linguist, but I can't imagine you speak all the languages of all these places that you've been to. Uh, no, translators in my field of work are crucial, and I think human rights and uh, humanitarian law advocates have different folk they can either focus on a region mm-hmm. in which case the language skills are essential um, you wouldn't want to be an expert in a country without speaking the language uh, however I work in a thematic area so it's of course possible to speak every language in the world because uh, armed conflicts you never know where they're going to appear so um, in that case I do work a lot with translators who are invaluable you obviously want a good one who can reflect the uh, stories of the people you're talking to um, but they also can be an asset because they understand the culture mm-hmm. and can provide clues, pick up on clues that you might not understand even if you did speak the language if you're an outsider. So they're, they're sort of our um, liaison with the culture and with the individuals. You mentioned the importance of working with students as part of your clinical work. And one byproduct of uh, your work with the clinic has been that you have a large network of alumni fans who call themselves the Bonnie Mafia. Um, and you've been a, a, an important mentor to a lot of previous students and, and colleagues in the disarmament movement. Um, did mentors play a big role in your career and your career choices? I don't think a specific mentor got me to where I am today. I think over the years I've had mentors in different jobs, whether it was an editor at the newsroom who helped, you know, train me because I had no experience before I arrived there. Um, I think my boss at Human Rights Watch is someone I admire greatly and who is who helped get me going in that field and who I still 
uh, look up to in terms of uh, how to do this work well and also the passion he brings. So I think, um, you know, mentorship has played a role to a certain degree over the years. So it's obviously something that you take extremely seriously, though, and, and you're very effective at it. What makes you such a good mentor? What do you think makes a great mentor? I think in my case, mentors can be successful and or mentors can be helpful in different ways. Um, I think, and people need different kinds of mentors. What might be good for one person isn't good for another. I think in my, um, when I approach it, I try to uh, both engage with the students on a personal level. I try to be accessible, not be a big, distant, scary figure. It really helped to um, understand the people that you're, the students you're working with, and to um, be an approachable person. I also think leading by example is really helpful. So whether it's you know doing the dirty work along with them, or um, you know working the same hours, or providing detailed feedback so that you've shown you've respected the writing they the time they've put into their writing by giving them comments in a, in return. And also, I think I very much believe that a mentor um, can be inspiring. And to be able to share the, the successes I've had to help them understand that this work can make a difference is really important. Um, so I think, yeah, being an inspiration to students is, is a key role that mentors can play. Well, yeah, certainly that. So. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, we've mentioned a couple of times you worked with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which was a civil society coalition that won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Can you tell us just a little bit more about ICANN's work? ICANN was founded more recently, but part of this um, humanitarian disarmament movement, in the, which began at the Mine Ban Treaty in 1997 and then took, you know, gained steam with the 2008 Convention on Cluster Missions, which we talked about. And I think ICANN's key role was to reframe the nuclear weapons debate, which had long been dominated by theories of nuclear deterrence and the belief that nuclear weapons were essential to national security. Uh, ICANN reframe that focusing on the humanitarian concerns. They brought survivors of nuclear use and testing. They documented what the effects of today's nuclear weapons would be, which would be even more drastic than older weapons. So again, they really humanized it and they made this an issue that is of universal importance and of urgency rather than an issue where states should be fighting against each other to protect their own interests. And it's a coalition, international coalition. The actual staff is very small, about four people, but they have a coalition of hundreds of, of organizations that have together, you know, worked to get this ban treaty last summer. What was it like finding out that they had won the Peace Prize? It was definitely one of the most exciting moments of my life. Uh, the uh, I knew they'd been nominated, but the news stories the night before didn't suggest they had much of a chance, but mm-hmm. I, I knew they'd been nominated. I didn't tell anyone at Harvard about that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I just, not setting an alarm, but I just was nervous, and so I woke up about every hour the night before and kept checking my phone, and then, because the announcement was made in Norway at 5.37, I rolled over, and my inbox was flooding with news that we had won the Nobel Peace Prize. So it was inspiring and exciting, and of course, I leapt out of bed and realized there's no one I could call at 5.37 <laughs> in the morning, so gave my family till 6.15 and then called them, but immediately started emailing people, students, Human Rights Watch and Harvard friends and started working on some blog posts for both Harvard and Human Rights Watch. I admire your self-restraint for a half hour (laughs) or so at that hour of the morning. I would just call everybody. Um, Tell us a little bit about your trip to Oslo for the award ceremony. Uh, Oslo was amazing. Um, The Nobel, and it was interesting that the uh, 
the other most amazing moment, or one of the other most amazing moments in my career was the, the signing ceremony of the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which is held in the same room in the same building. So it's the Oslo City Hall is definitely, I've got a soft spot for it. The ceremony itself was incredibly moving. The, um, both the Nobel Committee spokesperson gave a very powerful speech, and then the, the ICANN was represented by a survivor of the attacks on Hiroshima, who spoke about how she tried to, how she crawled out of the rubble, um, and you know, found this horrible scene ahead of her and has worked since then for nuclear disarmament. And then by Beatrice Finn, who was uh, director of ICANN, who provided the more modern context and, you know, both put, putting a call out, very stern call out to existing nuclear powers to, to take action. So I think the, the, the ceremony itself was moving and inspiring. And then the rest of it was both a lot of fun, but also... Um, a celebration of both ICANN's work and the larger humanitarian disarmament movement uh, in terms of they had a concert, they had banners on the street lamps, they had many parties, a, um, a museum exhibition, and so forth. And it was also very meaningful because so many of my international friends were there to be able to share this moment with people I'd worked with for 15 years, both on this weapon and others. So it made it very personal as well. For the more ignorant amongst us, um, can you explain a bit more about the effects of the, the ban treaty? Um, because, I mean, nuclear weapons are in the news a fair bit <laughs> these days, more than we would like, and you don't hear a lot about the ban treaty when we're talking about them. So what are the concrete effects that, um, that the treaty can help achieve? I think the treaty has significance on, on several different levels. Um, I think one the treat process that led to it and the treaty itself challenged conventional wisdom about how you deal with nuclear weapons. They showed that you don't need to move slow and you don't need to be state-centric. Um, they accomplished the they negotiated treaty in four weeks um, as opposed to the 50, 60 years that have happened since the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty pl committed states to work for nuclear disarmament. They actually got it done um, and in a very strong level and, and, and by showing that it didn't have to be the nuclear armed states that could make a statement, it actually could be the rest of the world. Uh, it also uh, played a role in making nuclear weapons illegal as well as immoral, which will set a standard and put uh, stigmatize the weapons more than before, and stigma is very important in international law and has proved to be effective in past disarmament treaties like the Mine Ban Treaty and Convention on Cluster Munitions, so it, put, it puts added political pressure. Um, and also, one thing that many people uh, forget is that it includes not only a prohibition on the use of nuclear weapons, but so-called positive obligations, obligations to assist victims and remediate the environment affected by use and testing. And that was the area the clinic worked most on. We got provisions requiring that in the treaty. And those that cleanup and that assistance is provided by both the affected state and all other states that a party must assist them. So as soon as you don't need to wait for the nuclear armed states to provide that kind of help. So as soon as the treaty enters into force, those that kind of assistance can come immediately. So have an immediate effect on improving the lives of those who have been affected by nuclear weapons. After something of this magnitude, I mean, it, I just can't even imagine. It's just so incredibly cool. Um, how much do you take a minute and breathe and appreciate what you've done? How much do you put your nose right back to the grindstone because, as Evelyn's saying, you know, there's a couple more nuclear weapons around than we'd like, and we talk about them more than we should and not enough about their effects. And so how much of it is celebration and how much of it is right back to work? I think we we and both the community and myself um, have both celebrated and gotten right back to work. I think uh, when I 
went to the signing ceremony in September of last year, uh, where states, you know, started to join onto the treaty. It was a huge moment of celebration, like this treaty had become real. And then after, you know, a brief celebration, everyone went back to the office and started mm -hmm. working again. I think in Oslo, we paused a little more after the Nobel Peace Prize, and it, we, I think it was important to relish the success we had. But there's so many issues to jump on. You know, I've been writing articles about the topic. I'm doing clinical projects related to the nuclear ban treaty. And you want to seize the moment now while people are paying attention to it um, and not let it just fade away. Because they always say that adopting the treaty is the easy part and making it, implementing it, and carrying it forward are the hard parts. Yikes. Some of your more recent writings have also been about so-called killer robots or fully autonomous weapons. What makes fully autonomous weapons such a special threat? So fully autonomous weapons, they're not in existence, but they're under development, are weapons that would identify a target and choose to fire on a target without meaningful human control, without a human pushing the button um, to, to kill someone. So we're concerned about where this would take warfare. Um, it would obviously revolutionize it in a way that we think is very dangerous. It would um, sort of cross a moral threshold by delegating life and death decisions to machines. It raises a lot of questions under humanitarian and human rights law. It raises questions of accountability. Who would be accountable if a robot killed civilians that they shouldn't have killed? Um, and this, interestingly, um, some experts have described as the third revolution in warfare after gunpowder and nuclear weapons. Hmm. So uh, I think if you look at the early nuclear weapons debate, you could have made this, many of the same arguments you're making today, and it'd be good to preempt these weapons so you don't run into a, a similar situation as we did with nuclear weapons. Most of us walk around day to day and don't spend a lot of time thinking about the nuclear weapons stockpiles or the possible existence of killer robots. When you're thinking about this so much, do you ever find that daunting or scary just to be thinking about these things in the world and, and what helps you, you seem like a very optimistic and, and generally cheerful person. How do you keep up that manner? I think it's important to look at it step by step. Um, so from the big picture, it's important to remember that you can make a difference in terms of, as I said, when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't think this was possible. Six years later, we succeeded. I've had another trip. I went to Ethiopia with Human Rights Watch to document war crimes. I went back with the clinic. And a lot of the it wasn't solved, but a lot of the people talked to us and said, oh my God, you've made such a difference. And so I think remembering those moments is really key at the big level. Um, but it's also important to go step by step. And it's not like you go from first documenting a problem to treaty. It's like getting uh, small goals. First getting people to discuss the issue, then getting people to negotiate a topic, then getting a draft, then getting you know certain provisions in there. And if you sort of break it up, uh, I think it's it's more satisfying and also more uh, it's easier to put up with the work because you know you're making incremental progress and then you also know you can make the big difference in the end. You've had an incredibly varied career uh, in the topics as you were talking about. Um, as you look back, how much of your career was planned and how much of it was sort of seizing opportunities as they were presented to you? I think in many ways it was more seizing opportunities that I was presented. I never expect to be a journalist or a human rights advocate. So I said I was thought destined for a history PhD. Um, and then once getting into the fields, you know, looking for opportunities where I could have value added, looking for opportunities that interested me, whether it was field research or, you know, using my legal skills on a treaty. So um, even starting 
my job in Human Rights Watch on September 12, 2001 was both the horrible thing, but also fortuitous for my career. If that hadn't happened, I might very well have ended in a, in a different place. So I think uh, looking for opportunities and seizing them is really important. And how much do you think you were driven by the skills in each place or the opportunity to do something new as compared to learn something new or be somewhere new? I think it's, I think it's a combination. Um, I, for me, one of the most important things was to do some good for the world, tr- trite as that sounds. So I think being motivated by um, sort of the public service you get in civil society. And I definitely have a curiosity to learn new substance, um, learning new issues. Um, and I, and applying the skills that I'm good at. I think everyone has are drawn to different types of of work, whether it's litigation or negotiation or field research or uh, grassroots advocacy, and sort of understanding what I was drawn to and what I was, you know, most uh, best suited to do is important. And then applying it to new issues. So like becoming an expert in a topic was really exciting and makes me feel like I can make more of a difference, but then being able to apply that to a new issue like nuclear weapons was also very exciting to keep me intellectually challenged. You said earlier that one of the main things that drew you away from the history PhD and the journalism path was that you wanted to be involved in making history rather than uh, just observing or documenting it. You've now been involved in several uh, history-making agreements, and I'm just wondering whether that involvement has given you a different perspective than you used to have on how history is made and the course of world events? Uh, I've definitely seen over the course of my career the power of individuals. And I think um, history, some history is focused on that, but so much history is focused on the role of governments and international organizations and looking at, at that level. But I've definitely seen that individuals can have a key role. And uh, I've seen that both in terms of you know, individuals telling their stories. So Setsuko Thurlow, who came to the Nobel Committee and spoke about her firsthand experiences with Hiroshima and moving people to take action, but also uh, civil society advocates. Um, I just read someone describing as ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that was one thing that struck me at the Nobel ceremony. These are just ordinary people. You know, we're nothing special. We're not heads of state. We're not, you know, bishops or popes. You know, we're just ordinary people who care about the issue and, you know, together can make a difference. Um, and I've seen that on individual uh, specific cases that I've worked on as well. So I think that those two things um, help frame your understanding of history. In terms of the, the power of individuals, um, in, in the course of negotiations for treaties that involve so many different parties and things like that. Uh, How does the power of individuals relate to sort of the importance of individual personalities as well in those kind of negotiations? Do those negotiations develop a kind of momentum that sort of will sweep along people uh, as they go? Or do key figures in negotiations really, and I'm not talking about only the civil society figures that are driving these forward, but like the actual states that have to sign on to the agreements, are the are individuals really important in those rooms as well? Uh, they definitely are. And I think it is important to remember it's not just individuals in civil society, but it's also individuals in governments. Um, there have been certain key leaders at key times that have been willing to push their own government to take action or and who have the diplomatic skills to develop a, a group of states that will work together to partner with civil society or international organizations, um, or to take up a very specific issue. I mean, I worked with uh, 
people in both the negotiations that government individual diplomats who helped get certain things in a treaty. I, I think two examples come to mind. One is in the cluster mission convention I was working with Lebanon on getting a provision requiring countries that have used cluster munitions to uh, help clean them up. And this diplomat just took to it, and he's obviously his country was supportive, but he prioritized it, and then I happened to prioritize it. And so we just reached like this partnership, and he would, when text was proposed, he would say that he had to talk to his lawyer in capital um, to get a take on it, and then he would text me and say, meet me in the cafeteria, and then we'd go over the 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 text together and um and so that helped make sure that got in the treaty if it hadn't been for his determination and, and our, our assistance that wouldn't have happened and i saw that again in the in the nuclear ban treaty where particularly with the the victim assistance and environmental remediation a couple of key diplomats were willing to take a stand and even if it wasn't their government's main issue they were willing to take a stand to to push it along so both at the ambassador level um, who might get a process started, but then at the individual uh, civil servant level, um, take, whoever cares about a certain issue can help get it in a treaty. In keeping with your disposition, it seems it occurs to me that all of the examples that you just gave are really positive ones about how individuals have made mm-hmm. really positive differences. Um, do you see the opposite often? I'm trying to think of an example. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you can definitely see... I know there's examples. Um it's I, great that they don't occur yeah. to you readily. I mean, that's, yeah. it's just you, you often think that there's going to be people who are really stubborn or obstinate in these kind of negotiations when you're when you're visualizing them. Um, it's great that none readily leap yeah. to mind. I think states leap to mind, but mm-hmm. not individuals. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they're not out there. Um, and I've like, for example, I was working with a country last summer to try to get it to adopt uh, adopt the treaty, which it did. But it was sort of getting one advice from two individuals, um, one who was very much in favor of the ban, one who was very much against it, and the ambassadors sort of stuck in the middle of getting advice from two people saying, now what do I do? Fortunately for us, it ended up positively and they did adopt the treaty. But you could see that sort of obstructionist side on the advice that they were getting from one individual. So I think there are cases, and then there are cases of states who have positions that they just won't support a topic, and in certain environments, one vote is enough to kill an issue. So both the state level and the individual, but I think with the individual level, I've seen more inspirational examples. So finally, we've got our set of leading questions that we ask all guests to follow up. What is one book that you've read that had a big impact on you and you would recommend? Always, It's always hard to narrow it to one book, but one that came to mind given the topic of our conversation and the the Nobel Peace Prize and the Nuclear Ban Treaty was John Hershey's Hiroshima. Mm. I first read it in college and was uh, very moved and inspired about it. It basically is journalists who shortly after Hiroshima went and uh, report, recorded the, the testimony of about half a dozen and, uh, individual survivors and followed their story through the blast until the, the days and years following. Um, and then I've re-encountered it, I, I always try to begin my clinical seminars by reminding people why we're there, why we mm-hmm. care about armed conflict issues, not beginning with the Geneva Conventions, but beginning with personal stories. And I've used that book in my disarmament class. Um, and you know, it really resonates with people uh, to understand, humanize the issue. It's not just about US and North Korea, but these are human stories. Mm-hmm. So I think Hershey does a good job. And it's also relates to my longer career trajectory, both historical, mm-hmm. I first encountered it in a history class, 
than to uh, respect John Hershey as a journalist. Mm -hmm. I think journalists are some of the best writers. And then to use it for my teaching and, you know, reminder personally that why we care about the banning nuclear weapons is, uh, you know, it's interesting on many fronts. That, that humanization is, is so important. I went to Hiroshima once when I was younger and, you know, there's obviously a lot of really amazing exhibitions and there's lots mm-hmm. of pictures and buildings and things, but the image that actually struck and stayed with me the most was there's a, a step that they have where someone was sitting on the step at the time that the bomb was dropped and you can see the outline of their, uh, where they were sitting and it's just that individualization and hu- humanization of the real costs of it um, can really make a very lasting impression. So. I, I completely agree. See, and that's, you know, whether it's going to the field and talking about one individual story or seeing the evidence, like you talked about, physical evidence of one individual's harm is, is really powerful. I'll definitely have to read that yeah. book. What's your media diet day to day? So I tend to, in, I'm on the New York Times headline uh, email, so I tend to look at that every day and read whatever strikes me. Also on the Washington Post. Um, so I'd say those are sort of a starter. Um, also get a lot of on various listeners at Human Rights Watch to get the bad news about various, you know, conflicts and other human rights abuses around the world. And, and uh, f- you know, perhaps most interesting, uh, the Red Sox and ChicagoCubs.com. Mm-hmm. So crucial, crucial to have a, some sports <laughs> and positive news as well. The Red Sox are doing well this They're season. They're amazing. I mean, yeah. Should, not good, but yes, um, exactly. Yeah. That is a source of good news sometimes. Yes. The Cubs maybe not always quite so well, much. Well, a couple of years ago, I got yeah. better news. Yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, what is one productivity hack or problem-solving technique that's helped you in your career that you can share? For me, breaking things down into parts. So um, obviously, we need to think about the big picture, remind you why you're doing it, and the humanization we talked about. But I think when I get overwhelmed thinking about, okay, let's finish this chapter or finish this article or finish this specific task, and then suddenly you've done the, you know, you can keep up with things. Um, and I guess that's, you know, found effective when I was writing a book on cluster munitions. I joked that it was happened to be nine chapters so that it was like a baseball game or a golf game. You know, it's like, okay, finish the first inning, finish the second inning. And it, it kept me going because I could break it down instead of looking at, oh my God, I have to write a 200-page book. Very helpful. Bonnie Doherty, thank you so much for your time today and for all the incredible work that you've done. Uh, it's really an inspiration. Well, thanks so much for having me and I uh, really enjoyed talking to students and this was a nice, a nice conversation. So are you feeling better or what? I feel like Bonnie's optimism is really infectious. Yeah, absolutely. Although I still jumped and my heart rate escalated a little bit when I heard an ambulance siren go off uh, a couple of minutes ago. So I don't know that a war zone and cluster munitions are exactly the key job for me, uh, but it definitely got me thinking a lot more about what I can do as an individual and the power of all of us to try and you know create big change that we want to see in the world. Yeah, I totally agree. And this was a great lesson in looking uh, beyond our borders to make that change. So thank you very much, Bonnie, for your time and for all of the work that you do.